This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Heretic Happy Hour, whose tagline is Burning Questions, Not People. Join hosts Shonda Jaw, December Rose, Dr. Reverend Katie Valentine, Keith Giles, and myself, Matthew J. DiStefano, for a happy hour filled with quality conversation, fine fellowship, and perhaps even a laugh or two. Unapologetically irreverent and crass, yet sometimes profound, we make sure to pull no punches and leave no stones unturned as we discuss the Christian faith. But listener, beware. There will assuredly be some serious sacred cow tipping. If that sounds like your cup of tea, or bourbon if that's your thing, head on over to heretichappyhour.com to stay up to date with us, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. A bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering evangelical. What could go wrong? This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast with Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and Jason Elam. Welcome in, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Messy Spirituality Podcast. This is Jason Elam. We're giving Lola and Kyle the week off this week for a very extended conversation with our old friend Brad Jerzak. Brad has been on the podcast a couple of times before. He is a fantastic guest, one of the nicest human beings that has ever walked the planet, at least in my experience. And he's written a fantastic book, Out of the Embers, taking a look at this deconstruction moment that we are living in right now. Is it a fad trend or is it something more than that? Is it a catalyst to real spiritual awakening? Uh, it's a really important question. I think you'll be surprised at some of the conclusions he comes to. We're going to discuss that at length in this conversation. And I hope that you will listen with an open heart. I know sometimes um, certain folks who are more orthodox in their faith rub the deconstruction crowd the wrong way because it feels like we get dismissed. Um, and so I asked Brad about some of those things. And so I hope that you'll tune in with an open heart and listen as uh, he deals with those tougher-than-usual questions, maybe. If you do want to get a copy of his new book, Out of the Embers, I encourage you not to go the Amazon route or Target or Walmart or Barnes & Noble. Look up Hearts & Minds books in Dallastown, Pennsylvania, or your local independent bookshop, and order a copy from them. They've got great prices, really personalized service that you're just not going to get from a big box store. I'll put a link to Hearts and Minds in the show notes for this episode. But again, if you've got a hometown bookstore, be sure to give them your business. I think you're going to love this conversation and I look forward to discussing it with you on the Messy Conversations group on Facebook. Kyle and Lola will be back in the next episode and we'll talk to you then. Enjoy this conversation with Brad Jerzak. It is a real honor and privilege after three years from our last conversation to welcome back the incredible Brad Jerzak to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Mr. Jerzak, welcome. Thanks so much for having me back. I feel more messy than incredible, and I think that makes us a good fit. <laughs> I think it does. And, and that's one of my favorite things about you has always been your uh, transparency. And uh, uh, I think it was, oh, my goodness, um, I think it was our first conversation. We've had two previous. In our first, uh, you talked about kind of a, a meltdown that you had in ministry. And you were so transparent about that, that something just grabbed me. 
And um, so I've always felt a special affinity for you and your work. And I'm so grateful to get to continue the conversation with you. So thanks for doing this. That's very kind. Isn't that interesting that I can I can screw up my life and harm myself and others and by just telling you that <laughs> draws you to, uh, I guess, the vulnerability or something. But I, I'm really grateful that you're gracious, you know? Well, isn't that the opposite of what we think will happen, though? I mean, I remember my 20 years in local church ministry, I really did feel like there was like an image to uphold, and I couldn't tell people all the crap that I was struggling with, or the times when I didn't feel blessed, or they would think less of me. And it turns out the exact opposite seems to be true. Yeah, that I've noticed that. Um, it. I used to think of it as generational, like um, that a certain age group and older really needed the stability of thinking you had it together. And a certain age group and under, for them to trust you, they needed to see that vulnerability. Now I'm not so sure it's a it's an age issue, but I, I have noticed the two phenomena, even side by side and like when to not say so much, when to say more. And right now, of course, like anything you don't say is considered a cover-up. So, <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, and I so I've tried to be honest about like even my 12-step recovery stuff, although, you know, that involves confidentiality too. So it's a, it's a weird time. And, and but messy is, is the word. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're in the right place and you're definitely among friends. Just to remind our listeners, uh, it was you having a conversation with Jonathan Martin at, Bra- at Brian Zahn's house. Yeah. Being recorded for Jonathan's podcast. I listened to that conversation while walking around the track at my local gym. And that is when, I don't know, I mean, I, I, it almost, it had to appear to other people in the gym that day as if I was having a nervous breakdown. I mean, just tears streaming down my face, overwhelmed by the love and the goodness of God, feeling like so much of my spirituality, which had been focused at excluding so many other people from the faith, just got washed away in the love of God. And I mean, I know that you've never particularly liked this word. I did notice it's on the cover of your new book, but that's really when my deconstruction kicked into hyperdrive was listening to you. So um, again, thank you for you, for your message, for your work. Uh, and your books, uh, they've meant so much to me. My pleasure. And so I'm so glad to uh, be able to continue the conversation. Um, so let's talk about that word deconstruction for a minute. When last we talked, you had rethought so many things in your faith. Uh, you've written extensively about hell, about the fire that emanates from God. I actually saw a social media post from you today about that, uh, that I thought was really good and I'd love to talk about. Um, but I believe you had just become like a reader in the Orthodox Church. Is that right? That was um, 10 years ago this month coming up. And uh, Oh, wow. Yeah. So you had been doing that for longer yeah. than I realized at that time. Yeah. I. Um, but th- that said, you know, after 10 years, I mean, I've been, I've been probably, I was probably mentored for 20 years now by Archbishop Lazar. I've been a reader and a participant in, in Orthodox worship. But, you know... To be honest, I, I, I'm still only 
like I'm only mostly orthodox and uh, and not very good at being that and I'm very comfortable <laughs> I'm comfortable about that in fact especially given the state of the orthodox church these days it's pretty there's a lot of awful stuff so I'm like you know what I hold that loosely but it is where I it is one place where I I plug in in, ter- in terms of worship so yeah so um, a couple of weeks ago, I saw a print by your friend, David Hayward. Yep. It's a picture of a cottage and it says, Christianity is my home, but I have houses everywhere or cottages everywhere. Mm. Do you feel that way about orthodoxy now or yeah, I mean, the orthodox church? Uh, well, and even Christianity. So uh, here's how I see it. There's a kind of effort to be ecumenical across Christian traditions and even interfaith um, dialogue and so on. One version of that that I, I don't like is just saying, okay, everybody actually believes the same thing. So let's just all dumb it down and uh, believe nothing <laughs> or, you know, or pretend like we all believe God is love and that's sort of it. And to me, that, that waters down an important aspect of rootedness and particularity. So I, I'm, a, I'm with David on that one in the sense that I'm like, instead of couch, the image I have is that that's couch surfing. I don't have a home. I'm just couch surfing. I have no, I'm not, uh, I'm not investing in a particular place. I'm just dipping in here and there and whatever. Versus what David's talking about is, okay, I have a faith tradition. I practice that faith tradition, but I also don't totalize it. I, I see other denominations and have experienced other denominations as places of grace and even other faiths where I have very deep fellowship with, with um, people who may be Jews or Muslims or, um, and that's expanding. I'm hoping to get more involved with my Sikh friends in this city. But from a Christian point of view, un- unapologetically so. So it's it's like I have my own home, I have my own bedroom, I have, and then I see these as spiritual cousins, and I have a great time going over and even having sleepovers, you know that kind of thing. And so, let's say Safi Kaskas, my Muslim friend, he will say, "Let's go. Let let's you and I go do something." Um, we're going to speak to faculty members at a university in Pakistan via Zoom. I want a Christian and a, and, and maybe and, and also a rabbi, and we'll see. And and then he says, but here's the important thing: come as a Christian. And I'm like, I don't know how I feel about that brand. And he's like, well, you know. And so I think we agree on this: that we can't just water down our faith to mean just about nothing, as if Jesus were only cosmetic or Muhammad were only cosmetic. No, that these are core to our home of faith, but it just the way I see Jesus today allows me to interact with him as a in in, in you know even he prays for me and we team teach on the beatitudes and we do all this stuff I'm like I don't have to pretend I don't that that we have the same theology we absolutely don't but we we both believe that we're called to be peacemakers and so yeah, that's that's a long answer to saying, yeah, I relate to David's cartoon in that sense. One of my favorite conversations I've ever had in the three years of doing this podcast was with your wife. Um, she came on and talked about the church that she dreams of. 
my my understanding from your social media is is maybe she's back pastoring again now. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, that's exactly right. So yeah, she's she's one of the pastors at the Bridge Church, and she had been attending. They were really good to her, and then they asked her to be in the steering team, and then they said, "Would you come be a pastor?" And she said, "Well." only on the condition that you know where I would be taking the church. And so she, she team pastors with uh, another woman named Sarah and where she, her goal was um, twofold. She says, I, I, I will stay as, as long as um, uh, I can help us get through COVID, which should only take nine months. <laughs> that was naive. Um, and then, uh, and then the other thing was that is, you know, as long as you let me walk the church into becoming a fully affirming congregation, by, by which she meant that the LGBTQ community would not only be welcome there, but that that there would be no barriers to you ex- exercising all their gifts, including leadership. And so, over the course of nine months, she walked them through that, and and it's wow. flourishing. I think only one couple left over it because she just spent an enormous amount of time out on our deck talking one-on-one with people or or with couples who about every possible question they could have about it. And I think what worked for her is she said, this is not about an ideology or moving from right to left or engaging the culture wars. This is, this is what happens if you put Jesus at the center and you say it's his table and it's an open table and we're here to serve those who come to that table. So uh, that's gone actually really well. That's awesome. I'm, I'm so glad that she found receptive hearts to that message and that she had the heart. I mean, it's really difficult to lead an existing congregation, especially in a new direction that maybe they would not have been comfortable with in the past. Yeah, um, gratefully, you know, they had spent years talking about this open table and about inclusion. And and she's like, okay, well, so the foundations were all set. And instead mm. of saying, okay, this is going to be LGBTQ year, she she said, um, our theme this year is Jesus is the center. And and somehow that that framed the whole process in a way that was healthy and didn't get co-opted by the ideologues. Wow. Well, that's awesome. I'm so grateful. So many of the folks that I'm connected to haven't been able to find that in Christianity. And they tend, about half of them tend to just say, all right, I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. What do you say to somebody like that? I know there's a lot in the new book that speaks to them. What would you say if you were sitting on that deck with them and they're saying, you know what, there's just nothing for me in Christianity. It's a bunch of racists. It's a bunch of homophobes. Um, it's a bunch of Christian nationalism. And I just don't want to prop up that machine anymore. What do you, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I understand that. I, I'm, I think that especially in America and in Russia, for that matter, since I'm aware of that through the Orthodox Church, you know, the Christian brand has been so tarnished that we actually do have to think about, okay, is it even useless? And should we walk away from it and that community? Now, I got really challenged on this in a powerful way by an activist, um, a, a, a black woman who, oh my goodness, I've just had a brain freeze. We were in a conference together called, you know, in New Orleans, um, what was it called? Inevitable or conversations or inconvenient conversations, whatever. Um, and and she said, 
maybe it's better that I forgot her name because I'm going to only paraphrase her, but here was what she communicated that, that, um, if you leave the Christian church or faith because of, let's say, white nationalism without investigating the voice of the black church and its gospel, that's still an act of white nationalism. <laughs> like she, in other words, oh, I'm leaving the church because it's racist. And she's like, wait a minute. So you've never visited my black church. Well, that's, you're, you're still doing a racist thing that you've just written off all of Christianity without looking at what we're saying. That's so dismissive, you know, and so that really rattled me. Lisa Harper is her name. And so I'm thinking, okay, to your question then, it's like, I get it. If you've been in a community that's exclusive and that has, has practiced a kind of faith that, that is bigoted, I understand why you might even need to follow Jesus out of there. I called that in the book, I called those believers, L-E-A-V-E-R-S, believers. I thought that was really good. <laughs> um, and I got that from my friend, Paul Ralph. And so I acknowledge that, but I'm like, okay, so then what would we lose in that? Well, I don't want to lose Jesus and I don't want to lose community or like I, what I don't want to do is, is to go into sort of a Christless alienation. So then what I would say is, okay, let's, without rushing this, find your bearings and say, have you actually met Jesus? Like, do you need to ditch him just because you can't be branded a Christian anymore? And if, and if you can ditch him that easily, I'm so sorry that somehow you didn't meet him. Whatever, wherever you come out on that, then it's also like, now what can we do to move from alienation back into communion without just going from one problem to another or out of the frying pan into the fire or one exclusive club to another exclusive club where I'll just be disillusioned all over again? None of that's easy. And I think that what I say in the book is I, I, I really think the the starting place is empathy, which just means listening to people's stories and saying, I tell me what you're feeling. Usually <laughs> what the story they tell me, it's like, oh, I totally get it. And and by the way, it's worse than you think. You know, so I'm not trying to herd them back into a through a door they've already left. But I do want to say let's be let's be mindful that there are there are very serious uh gay Christians out there. And so for you to walk away from Christianity because it's homophobic is to not have taken them very seriously yet. So go find them or a church like my wife's church, you know, where it's not about which identity you have. It's, it's about people who gather together, um, but removing the barriers to gathering with Jesus. So, so I think that's possible and we can either, we can either be part of that or we can walk away from that and, that's I get it when people do. I I just I feel sad uh, about it, but I don't feel like I need to manage their choices or their journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. It, it feels like some people are so traumatized, or maybe just so feeling so betrayed by what happened in a local congregation they were a part of that it's almost as if you have to go through for some people. 
I didn't do this, but I, I, I know so many who have. It's almost like they go into some version of atheism, agnosticism, whatever, as almost a phase of healing. I mean, is, is that a thing or am I just, or are these folks who are just walking away because they're mad? Yeah, I, I think that's right. That, that for many folks, it, it's part of stripping away, let's say, the false identifications with Jesus and let's say whatever their version of Christianity had been. And it's like, I just can't do that. In fact, the word Jesus might even trigger them because of who they've experienced him to be in those contexts. So I'm not alarmed by that. It's probably, they're probably on their way to authentic faith. It's just, they're in the teardown mode at that point and it, and they have to be. And, um, and and I think Jesus is completely unoffended by that, nor does he leave them. Um, now, he may only be able to relate to them as love or light <laughs> or life. What's wrong with that? Those are some of his names, you know. Um, he may It may be that he has to approach them anonymously. So let's say the 12-step group I'm in, half the group are ex-Christians, and half of those ex-Christians are ex-pastors. And a lot of them would now self-identify as agnostics or heretics like or pagans. This, this is their language for it, right? But in the context of that meeting, they're experiencing a higher power who is loving, caring, responsive, and relational, and is transforming them from the inside, and they know it. They just can't associate that with the Christian church anymore. Weirdly, though, some of them are are now coming back to like, okay, I don't have a big problem with Jesus though. And, and so one of them who would, he would call him, definitely call himself a agnostic bordering on atheist, but he's like prays every day and he reads the Sermon on the Mount every day. I'm like, okay, so something's going on here. And just to, to understand that, um, yeah, you're, you're describing almost like the need for a detox and also, although I do cringe a little bit at the word deconstruction, if we're talking about what are our constructs that have hindered our communion with God and with our neighbors, then those constructs, um, even if the construct is Christianity, if that needs to go for me be, to be able to get back to the great commandment, not a problem. Well, maybe it's messy, but um, I'm just seeing grace at work in, in people where you wouldn't, where, where, let's say, where their pastor might think they've just backslidden. I'm like, it's not that simple. <laughs> Is there some sort of an obligation if we are a part of an organization or a group that, you know, I was Southern Baptist for so many years, mm-hmm. uh, for decades, and we've now seen what has come out about Southern Baptists and abuse and cover-up. I think we're seeing now some of it in the Russian Orthodox Church, which I know is not, it's not your stream probably, but I think there's some nationalism raising its head you on think? the Russian Orthodox side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, no, that's, it's, and certainly exactly. evangelicalism in the U.S. has been experiencing that and may be about to see a resurgence of that. Is there some responsibility for us to say this is this doesn't represent the real thing? Oh yeah, I think uh, that's absolutely true. And then the question is going to be, like, how do you do that? And so 
I think it's Paul who said that judgment begins with the household of God. And, and to me, that means like there's a lot more authority to bring a critique from the inside than just to throw stones from the outside. So if I don't want people to just throw stones from the outside, I better be speaking up. So I'm, you know, the, <clears throat> let's say the Orthodox tradition I'm a part of, I, I it does have some, um, heritage with the Russians. And so as an, or, so it'd be like, I could say, well, as an ex-Orthodox person, I think Orthodox Christianity is terrible. But how about this? As an Orthodox person who's a tonsured reader who participates in a monastery congregation, I condemn what is happening in the Orthodox Church and it's, and, and it's become a harbor for violent nationalism, and I would call the patriarch of Moscow an antichrist because he's in bed with an imperial dictator and giving him a doctrine to go with it. And so, okay, um, or another example, let's say just I'm an egalitarian in the, in the Orthodox Church where women can do just about everything except be a priest. And I think that's terrible. And so some people may think, that's such a deal killer I need to leave. It's like, yeah, but what about all the women who are still there? We're talking 350 million people in the church. Let's say 200 million of those are women. So we're just going to abandon them. So I'm thinking in my lifetime, this won't change. But if it's going to change in 200 years, I want to be part of that. Not everyone's obligated to do that. And so I would say each person has to determine for themselves Am I, am I called to make my statement from inside the church as a prophetic opponent of the status quo, like the prophets always were? Or let's say like uh, Beth Moore, for example, who, or, or Jimmy Carter, who their big statement actually was leaving the Southern Baptist. And that spoke so loudly and it was really important. But, oh, and, and there's some are just like, I have no part of that anymore. And, and maybe even eventually it becomes irrelevant to them. It's like, hey, it's not my movement. But I like when Paul Young talks about it. He'll talk about the fundamentalist evangelicals and he say, hey, these are my people. Well, he hasn't been that for 25 years probably, but he still identifies so that somehow he sees a connection that he can use as a bridge to bring reform. Yeah, I love Paul so much. And the graciousness with which he speaks about his people yeah. is infectious. Yeah. I mean, I really, I remember him talking to me like that, thinking, I wish I could be more like that. Uh, these are my people too. And it's, it's not that you're saying that everything they're doing now is right. You're just saying, I could have very easily ended up in that same boat. So I need to have some grace for folks who are struggling. Yeah. Or, well, and in the case of Paul and I, we did end up in that same boat in the sense of um, we were participants in spiritual abuse. <laughs> so it's not just like, whoa, we got a good thing we got out of there, you know, because that went down. But it's like, no, I was compl I was complicit and he was complicit. And we, we get that. For me, what's really helped a lot is I just instead of thinking about the evangelical church as this nebulous entity, an institution, we could call that church as an it. I think about the real people that help me think of church as a she. And so I want to say a couple things about that quickly. One is, um, um, so I, I know a lot of the 
awful stuff that attended my early Baptist theological upbringing, probably starting at the age of eight when the revivalists came through town with Armageddon and Left Behind and all of that stuff. But even before that, I remember that my mom taught me Jesus' name from her lap, and I've loved him ever since. I remember that my father taught me how to love the scriptures and not use them as a weapon against others. I remember how my mom taught me how to pray um, for anybody and everybody every night. And we went, you know, and I, I had a real sense that I was talking to a Jesus who is present and can hear me. Um, I remember when, you know, how my, my dad obsessively <laughs> shares his faith in ways that are kind of embarrassing. But you know what? He is sold on something that he would die for. And I don't see that a lot these days. And I look at that and I go, it, that's Lloyd and Irene. That's, they're evangelicals. Would the world be a better place if they had never been born? Absolutely not. Would it be better if they just dropped dead today? Absolutely not. Do I love them? Of course I do. That's an evangelical. Oh, so then they become an archetype instead of some denomination that's that's covering up abuse or something like that. You know, so that's, I guess I've said my two things. One is Lloyd and Irene as, as, representatives, real people in a community where, where they actually did harbor me from, um, from the harshness of the world. And, and, and then, and then to see the church as a, as a, a she instead of an it. And here's a radical thought for you. Um, Father John Bear or maybe Chris E.W. Green, they, they were sharing when we were studying Revelation together that we thought of the, the whore of Babylon and the bride of Christ as two different things. And they're like, no, <laughs> it's the same. It's the, 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 it's the whore of Babylon is the church that needs to be transformed into the bride of Christ. Isn't that exactly what we saw in Hosea and Ezekiel? And I'm like, what? <laughs> so that we're not in denial of how bad it is, but we're also not despairing of what could be as, as she is, has the, the wrinkles and stains washed away. Um, wouldn't that be cool? And wouldn't I want to be part of that instead of just taking the role of the accuser? That's powerful. I asked several in our Facebook group, Messy Conversations, um, if they had questions for you. Mm -hmm. And the first question came from a, a gentleman that I love. He's a good friend and he loves you. But his question was kind of abrupt. Can he give deconstruction a break? <laughs> Do you feel like you've been hard on deconstruction and those undergoing it? Um, I want to... Well, in my book, he'll, he'll see this when he reads it, how I see... Um, I begin the book with, I believe in deconstruction. <laughs> I, I see a spectrum and it's, and it's not just that I'm creating a spectrum. I actually see this in real people and the spectrum, and I've experienced it in myself, both, both ends of the spectrum. So one end of the spectrum, I would say where deconstruction is incredibly liberating. It's an exodus. It is the removal of barriers to my intimacy with God, and it's absolutely necessary. God is beyond every construct, and those constructs can become idols. And in that sense, I, I, would, I, would, I say that deconstruction is necessary 
and and it's not only necessary it's it's like what do you think born again meant <laughs> you know right. um, to yeah. die and rise with christ that's so so i really want to affirm that end of the spectrum and i experienced that especially theologically when i let go of let's say a retributive construct of god not only do I want to give that a break, I am a proponent of it. Half, most of my books are helping people deconstruct in that sense. <laughs> Including me, <laughs> Including, <yes. laughs> you know, hell, atonement, you name it. Like, whoa, this is what that's about. That's a, we are deconstructing toxic images of God. A more Christ-like God was that, right? It's Right, definitely. So then the other end of the spectrum would be where, where it's like trauma, and I experienced that in my meltdown. That was a deconstruction. I guess I want to give that a break too, but the break I'd give that is, is, is compassion and empathy and that it's quite often involuntary and it's something you undergo and should not be shamed, but it's also not happy clappy. And that's been my problem. That's where I'm where I can be harsh, that the deconstructionists, some of them only know the liberation side. And so they're just cheerleaders for burning it all down. Like hashtag empty the pews, hashtag burn it all down. Really? So, okay, what happens then? I'll tell you what happens. The ones who are traumatized, first of all, let's say in the church, and then they're re-traumatized by the alienation when they're out of the church or out of the faith, it is, it's, it's, I describe it as like a mastectomy that my mom went through. We knew there was a cancer that absolutely had to go or she'd die, right? But also, she didn't know how much of herself she was going to lose. So, so what happens is I get the DMs from people in the psych ward saying, I left the church. I had to. Here's why. And I'm like, absolutely. Second, they're like, I, I lost. I did lose love. I did lose Jesus. In fact, I've lost meaning. And now, and this is their words, I'm bereft. So here's what happens then. We, for them, I want to walk with those people. That's a deconstruction that they, either they didn't sign up for it at all, or they began it, but they didn't realize how much momentum it was going to be. And, and so I'm like, I'm here for you. What I'm seeing is that the toxic positivity of some of the deconstructionists abandons them because it's so damn evangelical. Oh, you're not a good testimony for deconstruction, so you don't get to speak to this. <laughs> and... Like, wait a minute, my wife deconstructed right out of our marriage and she left my kids behind and everything. And you're like, what? So I'm supposed to cheer about that? Or let's say in Canada, we had this terrible problem with the residential schools where children, indigenous children, were stripped of their culture, stripped of their religion, stripped of their way of being. And it's like, and the church did were the agents of that. But you know what the philosophy behind it was? progressive Europeans who said that they're backwards and superstitious and we need to get rid of them that that their faith just like we got like we beheaded the Catholic priests in Paris. <laughs> I'm like, what? So then you've got 
some of the white, let's say, white progressives encouraging vandalism of churches on First Nation reserves where the, the indigenous people built the church and followed Jesus and participate in worship there. Or, yeah, burn it all down. So I want to complicate that question, right? And in that sense, I don't, I want to be a bit harsh about that. But I also want to say, again, remember where I started, that for others, it absolutely is liberation. It is enlightenment. It is an exodus. It is the Passover experience out of slavery to a kind of religious bondage. So now we're saying, well, geez, if it could be all of that, it's a pretty big umbrella. I'm like, yep, <laughs> the word's probably too big and kind of unhelpful, but we're, it's what we have right now. And it is a movement and it's a great movement. It's a necessary movement and it's a perilous movement. So hopefully, hopefully I address both sides of that coin really honestly, because I've experienced them both in my own life. Yeah, I think folks who feel like you give deconstruction a hard time are going to be pleasantly surprised with your book. I hope they'll pick it up. It's called Out of the Embers, Faith After the Great Deconstruction. Brad, what, what led to you writing this book? Why this topic now? Yeah. Okay, I'll be cynical first. Like, like it's like acid wash jeans. You can only sell them for about six months. So get on the, you know. <laughs> no, I'm being cynical because because there is kind of an industry to it that I find repulsive. And now I'm in it, right? But okay, the real reason is is for these the, the specifically for those who've gone through the kind of deconstruction where. On the one hand, they're being treated like backsliders by their churches and their families and they're feeling alienated. And on the other hand, because, because their deconstruction has been messy, that the, that the cheerleader deconstructionists are not hearing them and their pain and, or they're, they're, they're exploiting their trauma as just another weapon instead of like, no, I really want to know what's next. So if deconstruction is not the end game, if it's a birth canal that you have to go through, I think you have to go through it. So then how can I be a midwife for those who are in the process of going through it with the agenda? I have a very specific agenda, and that is that, that where they're experiencing the trauma of alienation and, and, and the, the incredible loss of faith or meaning or whatever they where they feel lost i i want to say okay let's let's walk together and say what's what's after deconstruction where is there something in those in the embers of this fire that's come through that we can stir up and um, my godfather says it's the kingdom of god but he's like what a, that's not a helpful term anymore so he says the kingdom of god is presence in communion presence in communion, what would that look like? And he, in that sense, he thinks the church is bigger than Christianity. It is any place that I have experiences of finding, giving, and receiving grace. And where that's happening, God is in the midst. And it's not, and, and then the other thing I would, so presence in communions instead of alienation and isolation and and then the other is um, that we would rediscover a living connection with God in a lot of ways we didn't even think counted, but they do count. Um, 
So a living connection instead of Jesus was some idea that I left for another idea. Or Christianity was a trauma and I don't want to do that again. So I think I'm going to avoid community. It's like, well, yeah, I get that. But, but. So it's because of friends who are going through this, because of my own process going through this, that I think that that this that deconstruction can be how's this for giving it a break deconstruction can be a beautiful healing journey um you just have to go all the way through it keep walking all right so while in in my own deconstruction journey it it was not me wanting to burn anything down it was i felt like the spiritual house around me burned to the ground yep. i had so many toxic beliefs yep. that were untenable Yep. And the love of God just blasted that structure of what I believed. At the same time, I started reading books like um, God Can't by Dr. Thomas J. Ord um, and others by Dr. Mark Karras um, with the idea of God is not this all-controlling, um, megalomaniacal you know, tyrant in the heavens who is orchestrating everything at all times. It's more of a partnership. That really changed. I mean, Jesus has never left me. I, I have felt the presence of Jesus every day along this journey. I talk to Jesus. Jesus talks to me. And, and he's not going anywhere. So does prayer, has, did prayer change for you as you were unpacking some of the toxic stuff in your belief system? Oh, yeah. And how does the idea that I guess I'm asking for you to respond to Dr. Ord's theology on God is not in control. He's looking for partners. Do you affirm that? Do you struggle with it? Oh, I, I, I'm completely with him on that one. Um, I'm not an open theologian, but I, I'm, a, you know, I think classic theology had said the same thing. He, he's a critic of sort of what I think was, you know, a scholastic kind of theology that based in Aristotle, where God becomes the unmoved mover. And that that's kind of, and that's, and that's not love, you know? And so, so what he and I completely agree on is that this idea of control is, is a misrepresentation of how, how, of, of who God is, because love doesn't control, but love does care. So in 12-step recovery, we even say, step three, I, I made a, a decision to surrender my will and my life to the care, not the control of uh, the God of my understanding, the God who loves me, the, and, and the God who is love. So if love doesn't control, that's also quite messy in some ways, because we're worried that if, it's, if God isn't controlling, then we're in for chaos. So there's a real draw towards a controlling God, the God who's in control, when we feel the chaos, right? And what Ord and what I do, I think, is in common is, is we say there's a third way here, and that is a God who cares and who participates in our lives and who welcomes our participation in what he does in the world. So a couple things about that. The, here's a the ugly side and the good side. So the ugly side is, let's say, the God who's in control initially might seem like, oh, good, that gets me off the hook of chaos. But now what do you do when you get cancer? Well, God gave me the cancer. Okay, what did you? What do you do when someone's raped or molested? I thought God's in control. If he's in control, he's evil. 
because he should have controlled this. He should have prevented this. He should have done this. And my prayer life kind of mirrored that in the sense of my participation in prayer then was to, to, that I would be an agent of God's control by making him obey me with my prayers. <laughs> and, um, but on the flip side of that, and this would be more like Ord as well. Um, um, Bishop Desmond Tutu said, um, for whatever reason, since humankind arrived on the scene, God does nothing in this world without a willing human partner. And gratefully, uh, the greatest of all human partners was Jesus Christ. And that I can be a willing human partner. How, how does God feed the sick? You know, he doesn't send manna um, or medicine to third world countries. He sends people who are willing to go and be agents of his care. And I think that's really beautiful, but it also, you know, it also then it means God isn't arbitrary. If God is in control, why does one person get healed and the next doesn't? I don't know, but it, it sure sounded like he's picking and choosing and making playing favorites. When in reality, it's sort of like God cares about everyone and he's called us all to participate in the restoration of all things. The problem is not many people want to do it. <laughs> and I think that's where, um, that's the narrow door he's talking about. That's the narrow way that leads to life. It's not that he's been exclusive about salvation. It's that it's hard for him to find partners. So anyway, I, I think the way that shifted my prayer life was I remember telling my spiritual director, I was so angry because some tragedies had happened in our church and I'm, I'm yelling like, you know, God's not obeying me. So I had reduced prayer to, to me giving God orders so that he could be my servant in as I controlled the world and I was the director of this play. I shifted from there to saying, okay, if God is at work in this world, what does prayer do? Well, pr prayer is one way that I participate and where I welcome his grace into, in, into this world. And, and that includes how I'm going to be the answer to those prayers, but it's not all on me because if God is a willing partner, so do I, I have a willing divine partner then. And I've seen enough beautiful things happen through that, that I'm like, um, I need to probably let go of the outcomes that I want to dictate, but I can welcome his mercy into every situation. So when I pray, Lord, have mercy, I think he hears me and I think he answers. And I think he's like, that's, I can work with that. That's all I need. And, uh, and then, and then as I'm praying, Lord, have mercy, it's also changing me into like, how can I convey your mercy in this, in my city or in this tragedy? So I do feel like I haven't just gone to a kind of contemplative prayer that doesn't ask God for anything. That doesn't sound like Jesus teachings on prayer, but I also, I also am more light handed about like what it's got to look like. So I'll tell them what I want. I'm like, hey, God, my, you know, my friend is sick. I want you to lay your hands on him and heal him. I don't know if you will, but I know this. I'm going to pray, Lord, have mercy. And I absolutely know he answers that with a positive affirmation every single time. So that feels good because my, my prayers are being answered in, 
from my perspective in ways that I actually then be just become alert for how that happens. Have your views on Jesus changed? Um, I know that the last time we spoke, um, you were so gracious in bringing up Richard Rohr. The Universal Christ had just come out and you had some real differences with that book, but you spoke of uh, Father Richard as an elder teacher and and you were very gracious in your words for him and about him. H- have your views on Jesus what happened on the cross? Yeah, any of that changed um, as you've continued in your spiritual evolution? Yes, there's been some things that seem to be more clarified for me now, even since we last talked. And that's partly because of um, the influence of people like Father John Bear. So here's an interesting thing that the way the issue is this, and I, and I don't, I see this as a, a theological conversation. I don't see this as a test of fellowship or a test of orthodoxy at all, at least not from my perspective. So there, in, in I could have roar wrong on this. And so I want to also just say there's a way of seeing this that at least the disciples of roar see it. So it'd be like you have, you have this divine word that's out there and that at some point in the life of this divine word has an episode called the incarnation where he assumes human nature. And then the question is like after, and, and that that's in Jesus of Nazareth. And then, so some of the questions that come out of that is after the incarnation, have we now moved beyond the humanity of Jesus just back into the universal Christ? Was that just an episode of his humanity or is he now permanently human? Another question that comes around that is, is he just the first to do, to um, and, and most complete human to to become the Christ and, and you and I could and should too? Things like that. I don't know that Rohr is saying those things, but, but th- that's kind of some of the things that are out there. Like, so I will see people say, well, I'm the Christ in the same way Jesus was the Christ. I just, he just did it first and he did it better, but we all need to do this and become Christ conscious and so on. Um, I don't know how fair I've just been because I'm talking about a lot, a bit, a big, a broad spectrum of beliefs about that. But the essence is this, that you've got a, the divine word who later becomes human maybe forever, maybe temporarily. What Bear does, B-E-H-R, Father John Bear, is he says, epistemologically, that is how we know, we, we come, we begin with Jesus Christ crucified and risen. That Jesus is the Christ, and that he's, he, he, he's the crucified and risen God-man, who is the one who said before Abraham was, I am. So there was no, there is no divine word before Jesus of Nazareth because the word exists out of time. Um, the word, the word is not on our temporal timelines of before Jesus and after Jesus. The word for for the word God the Son, it's all now, and and uh, but we only know that word through Jesus Christ crucified and risen. So it's sort of like. He is the word in whose image Adam was created and that the word is eternally human then because there isn't a time when he wasn't, when, when Jesus Christ wasn't the I am. 
So this is, you can see how some of it can seem like just nitpicking or something, but how I would see it then is that Jesus isn't just this enlightened human that gets supercharged for a while by this other thing that was out there. The theological problem is that you end up with two persons. You've got the You've got the the divine nature and the human nature, and somehow that there's a time when they're not indivisibly one person. And um, so, what I'm trying to do there, what Bear is trying to do, is we're trying to say, um, through his passion, this is the Barian formula, through his passion. So we're talking about crucifixion, resurrection. Through his passion, um, Jesus Christ becomes as human what as god he always is so uh, uh, what we've done there is we're saying that the cross explodes the whole idea of temporality and we, we we just say we we don't conceive of god even apart from the rabbi of nazareth who is that eternal word so my entry point is, is actually at the cross. I'm not imagining a time back in eternity past. That's an oxymoron, by the way, eternity past. In eternity, it's all now. That's, that's why, um, so, so, so the eternal word is eternally now to the, to, to the one on the cross, but he's also eternally now to me and to my suffering. And he was also eternally now to Abraham and to Moses and showed up there. And, um, but in this, so boy, I'm sure I didn't clarify it for you, but in my mind, it's more clear now. It's <laughs> yeah, more good. clear that, that Jesus is the Christ and always is where I'm using always the has verb. Been, always will be. Exactly. And even, I'm even saying is to avoid has been and will be. Right, because they because from God's time, perspective, which doesn't exist in eternity. Exactly that. Yeah. yeah, and and though, um, just a footnote to that, because time and eternity intersect in that one person, time itself is transfigured without being negated. So, what does that mean? I don't even know. <laughs> like, we, these are these are great mysteries, and so at the end of the day, that's why I'm like, well, I I think I think I think Roar and I see it differently, but I. Man, he just hugged me, Richard, Father Richard. <laughs> exactly, that, yes. You know, because he embodies he does. something that theological nitpicking can't and doesn't. And so, yeah, that's, I think I'm being faithful to people like Athanasius, and, and, and but I would also argue that some of Rohr's opponents need to see that Rohr is being faithful to aspects of 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 maximus the confessor so don't just like rush to call him a heretic or you probably will be one (laughs) that's right okay so um i know that our time is running out but uh, i have really enjoyed this conversation i would love for you to make one one last appeal to you know, our audience is almost entirely deconstructing folks half of them have already left the church half of them are still hanging in there what does this book, Out of the Embers, Faith After the Great Deconstruction, what benefit do you think it'll have in the lives of folks who are in the midst of that spiritual evolution themselves right now? Yeah, if, it, if, if, they, can, if they can continue the journey, I've never thought deconstruction is the problem. It's, I would say that it's half-assed deconstruction. It needs to go all the way to the bottom. 
And what I mean by that is death and resurrection, right? But, um, well, what, but what does that mean? Well, they've died to a lot of stuff. That's really, really good. Um, and then I would, I would, I'm suggesting to them that after, after this, that they would, they would, um, be mindful of the places where they experience those exchanges of grace that we're, that I'm calling presence in communion and living connection. If they have that, you know, mission accomplished, but that to the degree that some of them may be still feeling the trauma, some of them are experiencing alienation. Some are, um, I, I just want to empathize with them and say, well, I'll be patient with you. Can you be patient with you? And, um, and, and, but, but be, be watching today for little bits of mercy and grace in, you know, all over your lives. I think by the end of the book that they'll get that, that they'll, they'll see that I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm really, um, grateful for the journey that they're taking. It's a courageous journey. And I also want to say, I know that it's perilous. And yet, just breathe. <laughs> this is, it's like birthing, right? So I think what they'll, it, when they read the book, they might react to some of my harshness around it because I've, I'm the one who gets the DMs from the folks in the psych ward. Like, remember that. But also not to forget that I'm, I am affirming the removal of every idolatrous, um, construct that has oppressed them. I'm with them on that and cheering for them. So, yeah. Amen. I love the birthing analogy. Mm -hmm. Also love the idea of all of this deconstructing has to lead to something. And, and, And I think that in the past, you know, I've been erroneous in saying, you know, well, here's what you ought to do to reconstruct, you know, and I don't think I should expect to tell anyone else how to do all of that rebuilding that needs to take place because I think God's leading us all to something that's, you know, uh, can be unique in every circumstance. But there's a, I don't know, it's almost like exactly what Jesus was calling Nicodemus to do. Yes, the culture you're living in is toxic. And yes, there's something else to be had out there. But just rejecting the toxic culture doesn't introduce, doesn't bring the awakening that we're really hungry for. Right. What's, what's the invitation, right? What's the invitation? And to be fair, even to you, like some, sometimes people really are so paralyzed by the experience that they, they do want you to say, like, well, try this. But it's just that, right? It's try this, not like do this, don't do that. And they're, they're looking for some some help. And hopefully I can be of some help. But certainly the guys in the middle of my book, the seven sleepers, I call them, they, they're definitely of some help, even if they're the most brutal deconstructionists in history. So, Well, I love the book and I love you, brother. I'm so grateful for you and your work and your wife and just... The whole deal. I'm I'm grateful. So thank you for this time together. Thank you for this book, and thank you for all the others uh, yet to come. What's next for you? I haven't nailed it down yet, but I really am thinking. Of going back to something very simple about like 
for the, some of the people that I describe in this book, they're like, that's great. You're talking about a living connection. I want that. How can I have that? And I start there, but I think I'm going to, to do a book that expands a little bit on that perhaps. And like, so that our experience, uh, it, so that we, so that God is real to us. That would be a, that's a question I want to answer, or I don't know if I can answer, but how, how can God become real to me? Um, I'm hearing a lot. So awesome. Well, I look forward to that and I hope we can have another conversation when it's ready for the world. Yeah, thank definitely. you. Thank you. Thank you for this uh, conversation and for this book. Again, friends, Out of the Embers, Faith After the Great Deconstruction. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and it, it release the raw version of this conversation immediately. So you're hearing it before November 22nd, which is the official release date. So you can go ahead and pre-order. Uh, the folks who are listening to the edited version that will come out on our normal schedule will be listening after release date. So if it is after November 22nd, when you hear this, the book is available right now. Go get it. The link is in the show notes. Brad, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Appreciate it. 